Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number six of Sober Speak. I want to start today's episode off with a reading from the 12 and 12. And a friend of mine, Tony D., actually sent out a text earlier in the week. And this particular reading caught my eye. And once again, it's from the 12 and 12, page 114. That's step 12 in the 12 and 12. And it says, We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we have got the cart before the horse. We shall be pulled backwards into disillusionment. But when we are willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. My name is John M. Uh, I'm an alcoholic and I'll be the host of this episode number six. At Sober Speak, you will find podcasts of people sharing their story of recovery, much like you do in a speaker meeting. These men and women will tell us about their experience, strength, and hope centered around the 12 steps of recovery. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We're not allied with a sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. We welcome you, all of your comments. Uh, you can go to SoberSpeak.com. Just click on the Contact Us uh, tab, and we will uh, be glad to hear from you. Please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope of recovery for those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest behind. Okay, so everybody, we are sitting here. I'm sitting here, not we, just me. Uh, I'm sitting here with Mr. David G. And uh, I'm going to give him a I'm going to give him an introduction. It's going to be a little bit of a, a twist on an introduction that I've heard him, how I've heard him introduced in the past. And David is a mix of Ted Nugent and what I would say, Billy Graham. So David, he's got a little bit of that wild side, yet he is an evangelist. And uh, he is, uh, uh, I'm just uh, so glad for it that he's here today. Um, so David, say hello first off. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Um, all right. So I have so many different topics that I want to cover with you, David. And um, uh, the first thing that I, I've heard you talk about this in meetings before, and that is step eight in the 12 and 12. And I want you to go ahead and, and touch on that and how you see that, how it affects your life. And then we'll just take it right there and then we'll move forward. Okay. All right, John. Um, I would say when I look at step eight and the 12 and 12 and see what Bill thought about our recovery when he'd been sober for a few years, one of the most striking things that he says is, um, and I'll quote it, um, he says, since defective relations with others has always been the immediate cause of our alcohol, uh, of our woes, including our alcoholism. And then he goes on to talk about studying that. And, uh, and I, I have this recognition now, uh, having been sober for basically half of my life, I have this recognition that these defective re relationships and how they affect the way I feel about myself, the way I experience the world around me, have driven me in ways that I don't even, I'm not even aware of a lot of the time. Since I was a small child, um, being the kid who when he didn't get his way would take his ball and go home. 
and, and the memory I have of that is sitting at home wondering how the kids were still playing and having fun without me there anymore. Um, within my family unit, um, not getting my way within that system and the way I would, uh, you know, uh, act with silent scorn and, and uh, retreat from the people around me, generally for things they didn't even know I was upset about because I never even communicated to them what it was that I needed or wanted. I just was angry and upset and threw right. tantrums uh, because I wasn't getting what I needed and wanted. So I not only had the complete inability to communicate with people, I also had this inability to express the feelings I had about how dysfunctional that communication was. Right. And that combination, you know, it matured in my life. And I don't mean matured in a, in a positive way. It grew within me. It, it, uh, it had its little uh, symptoms here and symptoms there that looked like an older person. But basically what I did is I refined, um, as I got older, those behaviors uh, as I learned how to uh, manipulate situations better and better to get my way. And it became a very painful thing because I basically created a reality around me to satisfy the people around me so that I could get what I wanted from them. Right. And uh, it's like the exact opposite of intimacy. I, just like when I was a small child and I didn't tell my parents what I wanted for Christmas. And yet when they didn't get me what I wanted for Christmas, I was angry and upset and threw a tantrum for a gift that I didn't receive. I was married 20 years and I didn't tell my wife what I needed from our relationship and yet held her accountable for not giving it to me. Right. And it, it really uh, turned into a disaster. And to talk about it being the immediate cause of my woes, including my alcoholism, makes more sense to me every year that I'm sober. Right. Another uh, topic that I've always been really uh, interested in with you uh, is your your relationship uh, with your original uh, sponsor. Uh, his name is Clovis. Yep. Uh, and I always love that name, right? It's a, just a fantastic name. And uh, you were um, so so so. Tell me about how you got hooked up with Clovis in the beginning. What that relationship was like. What he meant to you. And uh, just talk about Clovis, because Clovis is not with us anymore. Yeah, right? he passed away okay. about five years ago. About five years ago. So talk a lot. Talk about. So it. to go to go to Clovis, you kind of have to understand what I went through the six years before I got to Clovis, and I'll be brief. But um, basically, I followed the uh, advice that I heard so often in AA and CA and uh, NA and the groups that I was going to back then, trying to get myself together. And that was that I needed to find someone that I could relate to, someone that I wanted what they had, uh, and ask them to be my sponsor. And so year after year, I would get guys to sponsor me who, looking back, were kind of the cool people at the group, who kind of made fun of other people, who did their own thing, who weren't super involved in uh, the service structure of the group. Frankly, it was, it was generally people who didn't really ask me to do much more than call them every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, calling them every day was not difficult because we didn't have cell phones back then, and so I just called them when they were wor at work and left them a message. Just another clever way to trick myself out of actually doing the program. Right. And during that period, my life got worse and worse. If I could have gotten sober with the consequences that brought me to my first meeting, what a blessing that would have been for me and everyone around me. The very, very worst years of my life happened between 1987 and 1993, during which I was a somewhat regular member of Alcoholics Anonymous right. and other fellowships. 
And um, so when I had suffered all I could stand, and I mean, I can really tell you that I got to a point where I could not stand me anymore. I couldn't stand the way I felt. I couldn't stand the way people reacted to me. I just couldn't stand being in my own skin anymore. I had this revelation that I had never really worked the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And the only thought that made sense to me is that I was going to ask one of these people that I really had never wanted anything to do with before, one of these people who carried their big book around and had highlighting in it and would spontaneously <laughs> quote the book. And I would think to myself, what did they, they uh, memorize that before the meeting to look cool? And, you know, I just had a real jaded view of what these people were about, you know. Um, and I, Clovis was one of those people. And it's not that Clovis sickened me or anything. He just wasn't someone that I would have gone to for help before I had this point where I reached that I couldn't stand myself anymore. And when I went to Clovis and asked him, I didn't ask him to be my sponsor. I don't know why it wasn't premeditated. All I said to him is, would you please show me how to work the steps? And he kind of came back at me a little smart aleck, you know. He came back at me, oh, so you think you're going to get sober. (laughs) And he had some reasons, which we don't need to get into, to find me kind of irritating. Probably a lot of the same reasons a lot of people found me irritating. I was a taker. I was a taker in AA. I used people. uh, I took advantage of different people in the groups for money, for women, for different things. Uh, and, And he really probably didn't think much of me, but he was willing to help me. And he did something that no one had done prior to that. He didn't ask me to call him every day. In fact, he asked me not to call him every day. He, I could, he told me I could call him anytime I needed to talk to him, day or night, but that I didn't need to call him every day that he was busy and he had things to do. Uh, but he gave me assignments. He said, I want you to buy a spiral. And he, he was specific, not something fancy, not something with a leather binder. It needs to be a 79 cent three subject notebook that you'd have for third grade from Walmart. And I want you to get a yellow highlighter and I want you to get a big book. And I want you to read from the front cover of the book for the doctor's opinion. And I want you to highlight these things. And I want you to meet me here this Friday at the noon meeting. Mm -hmm. And first of all, no one had ever given me an assignment from the big book before. And if they had, I didn't remember it. And I certainly didn't do it. And, um, and I started that process with him. And what started off as me following this guy's uh, instructions turned into the first real intimate relationship that I had ever had with another person in my life. I mean, man, woman, mother, father, sister, girlfriend. I had never had such absolute intimacy with another person because he made it possible for me to disclose exactly who I was to the best of my ability. And the connection I grew with him, frankly, for for a period of time, Clovis seemed like God to me. He seemed like my higher power. Mm-hmm. Over time, I recognized he had his faults, and and we became more friends. And I understood more and more that he was a he was a, a flawed man, like everyone is a flawed man. Uh, but never did that bond go away. That I could tell him anything absolutely that I was thinking, feeling, or had done. And he may not tell me. He would sometimes tell me that what I did was wrong. Occasionally, he would make me spell the word wrong to make sure I understood. <laughs> what the word wrong was, uh, but he also never made me feel guilty or ashamed of who I was. Yeah. You know? So, um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up Clovis is because, well, you know, I know you have three kids, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Two that are biological and one that is adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that one that is adopted as how it relates to Clovis, please? Yeah. So, when Clovis passed away a few years ago, um, his, he was the youngest 
of his siblings and the older ones lived in other places around the country and there wasn't much money there. His ex-wife um, had gone sort of off the rails on drugs and alcohol and um, he had had a child with her just a few years before, a little boy um, named Keenan. And um, no, Kean, excuse me. And uh, Kean, I had met Kean a couple years before when I'd gone to visit Clovis out in Bonham. And uh, his family called me and said, David, will you hold a memorial service for your AA friends for Clovis? And so I found a church that would welcome us. And um, I set up a memorial service with other friends of uh, Clovis's from the program. And. and there was a huge outpouring. I mean, there was probably 200 people there, and I'm just guessing the place was full. It was standing room only in the sanctuary at this church. And we held it just like an AA meeting. Uh, I stood up at the front, we said the serenity prayer, and we had people come up and talk about Clovis. And, um, and I saw uh, Laura, his uh, uh, ex-wife, was not there and I didn't know why she wasn't there. And I saw Kean and he was there with another woman and I didn't know why he was there with another woman. And at the end of the service, the Kean, the last person who spoke was him. And the, he asked if he could speak and he was a little four-year-old boy. And the, the lady carried him up to the, walked up to the microphone with him and held him to the microphone. And he just grabbed the microphone with his hand and he said, I'm sure gonna miss my daddy he was always so good to me. And it just tore the hearts of everyone in the room uh, to see this little boy lose his dad at that age. And, um, and so after the service, I talked around, I said, who is the woman with, with Kean and where's Laura? And they told me the story that she had had problems, which I want to say she is now sober a couple years and doing very well and has re had some, uh, has had contact and has a relationship with, with Jack. Um, and anyway, so I found out that he was, uh, had been kind of cast off into the foster system and that was going to be adopted by a family that had seven adopted children already from the foster care. And, and, um, he was going to, uh, have a very tough go where he was. And, uh, my wife, Teresa and I, after the service, uh, spoke and uh, both of us agreed immediately that we were going to take him in and, and adopt him. And he's wow. been with us ever since. Wow. Well, what was that process like? I mean, oh, I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, I couldn't, I've never had, I've never been through such a process of interviews and background checks and questions about deeply personal things. Um, uh, you know, just to make sure that we were a suitable family. And they did the, you know, that system is there, there to protect the kids from going to one bad situation to another. And it was a very, it was a, it was a very good thing to happen for them to know that we were okay for him. But my gosh, we really had to jump through a lot of hoops. And, and that was in a situation where the, uh, everyone in the family wanted us to adopt him. So I can only imagine what it's like if there's a fight, you know, but he's, he's been with us for three years and uh, we, we were suggested at that age that it was a good idea for him to get a fresh start. He went through some traumatic things. Yeah. And we showed him some pictures of our family members who were no longer with us. And my grandfather's name was Jack. Ah. And he said, I want to be Jack. Oh, and wow. his middle name is Clovis. So he's Jack Clovis Greenleaf. Wow, now. that is fantastic. Yeah, it's been a real blessing. Yeah. Uh, man, I, 
And so, yeah, so did, so he actually got to pick. So he was Kian, yes. right? Uh, this is almost like uh, I was uh, I was Saul. I was on the road to Damascus, <laughs> right. and then I Not became Paul. Paul, right? Something like that, yeah. Um, so he he was Kian, um, and then and like you said, you, he got to pick out his well, name. They told us to just do it. Yeah. But he's a smart little boy, and we didn't feel like just superimposing a new name on him right. was the way to do it. So we decided to sit down with him and ask him what he would like to do. Right. And uh, Teresa's brother had passed away a few years before. His name was Tim, and my grandfather Jack, and my dad Phil. And, and we just sat down with him and showed him pictures of these people and, and basically said, told stories about them. Right. And he just... As soon as it was over, he said, I want to be Jack. Oh, my goodness. And so he's Jack. It was a, it was a really a neat thing. You oh, know? That... And he still talks occasionally about when his name was Kian. Yeah, yeah. You know, he hasn't forgotten right, it. Right. Laura, who's a dear friend of mine I've known for 25 years, his, yeah. his birth mother, yeah. we welcome her now. I mean, it, we wanted to make sure that she was well into sobriety, not to confuse him, but she's done an amazing things in her life through Narcotics Anonymous. Right, right. And, uh, and I'm so happy for her that she gets to yeah. be a part of his life because she probably never would have been able to see him again. Yeah. Wow, that uh, makes me, uh, that whole story really just makes me uh, tingle all over. And I, I think about Clovis looking down. Yeah, he right? would be very happy about this. He no question about it. He would be super happy, you know. And and how how was Clovis to know twenty plus years right. ago? By the way, David, go ahead and tell the audience you've been sober. What's your sobriety? Uh, September fifteenth of ninety three. September fifteenth of ninety three. So Clovis started sponsoring that you. That's that's the day. Yeah. Wow. How would Clovis know that your sobriety date was going to dovetail? into an adoptive father, mother, and family, all of you, mm-hmm. for his not-born son yet, Jack, many years later. That well, it's is- interesting. I don't think he would be that surprised, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. About 10 years ago, I was with him in Bonham. I would go see him every year, and I'd sometimes go speak at his group. And I don't remember which time it was, but we were talking about our relationship and you know how much it meant to him. He was talking about it and, you know, he told me something that I didn't know at that point. And he was eight years sober when he sponsored me and he sponsored all kinds of people. And I was his first sponsee that got long-term sobriety. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know that until I was sober, you know, 12, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, so another thing, well, you know, David, I know that you have, uh, uh, you know, I know that you're in AA. You've been in AA for a long time. You've been an evangelist, like I talked about, <laughs> with Inside the Program, not wanting to be an evangelist. Right. It's just your your nature. Uh, and um, But I know also that you have a background in addiction, like drug addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to how those two, I, I, I want if this, if somebody is listening to this that has had dealt with both drug addiction and alcoholism, I want to know how you have taken the the, the program itself and dovetailed those two things together, and uh, just just hear your your experience in that arena. Okay. Well, first of all, um, there's no question that I'm alcoholic by any definition that you could come up with. 
from the very beginning of my drinking, I drank for uh, to become drunk. I never drank because I enjoyed the taste, although some things taste better than others. <laughs> I was always a person who drank so that I could, you know... Uh, become very inebriated you know I wasn't looking to have one beer you know if people were talking about having one beer I'd grab two or three beers go in the garage and shotgun them so that I could get a buzz so it was always about getting a buzz and uh, but of course when I started partying um, it was much easier a lot of times to get drugs than alcohol so I was exposed to a lot of drugs I mean ecstasy was basically legal when I was in high school you could go to a bar and you could buy a hit of ecstasy and you couldn't buy a beer and frankly, ecstasy is really good and fun, and it, there's a reason that it's called ecstasy. And and we did a lot of it, and we did a lot of hallucinogens, and you know, always smoking marijuana, but still always drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, drinking always started it all off, uh, and drinking always finished it all off. Mm-hmm. So I want to be clear that there's no question that I have a desire to stop drinking, and that I just from that basic need that I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. But the the confusion sometimes uh, comes in do people who only drank understand uh, people who use drugs. And uh, my experience with that uh, would probably be best brought back to Clovis. You know, Clovis was a straight whiskey drinking alcoholic. He didn't take pills. He didn't smoke marijuana. He didn't do cocaine. He didn't even really know what crack was. When I told him that I <laughs> smoked crack, he called it taking crack. And that's not the appropriate way to describe it. You don't take crack. You smoke it. So his... Is the necessity of him understanding the drugs that I took had nothing to do with working the 12 steps with him. Right. Um, he was at times fascinated and asked me questions, but frankly, I was fascinated by the way he drank because, you know, he was a person who was who remained a, a blackout drinker for 30 years. Right. And uh, that's a lot of blackouts. And during those blackouts, you know, Clovis killed a woman. Uh, in a car wreck, in a blackout, and woke up handcuffed to a bed in a hospital. And so the necessity of him understanding crack and LSD and marijuana uh, turned out to, to be uh, not true. Um, it didn't affect our ability to work together at all. And as I've been sober for years and gone to different fellowships, you know, I actively go to Cocaine Anonymous. Um, obviously, I'm very, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then the reason I participate in those programs instead of Narcotics Anonymous isn't because Narcotics Anonymous isn't a good program, in my Mm -hmm. view. It's because I work the 12 steps from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And both the fellowships I participate in use the big book. And I don't want to go into another fellowship that doesn't use the big book and interfere with the message that they're sending. And I don't interfere with the message at any group that uh, the big book is the central uh, way that they work the 12 steps. And so, you know, I think about Bill and I think about Dr. Bob and how when they took high-powered sedatives, they were talking about morphine and opium um, and an opioid addiction these days. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Dr. Bob woke up every morning and shot up morphine so that his hands didn't shake while he practiced proctology. I'm pretty sure that he was to some degree addicted to morphine since opioids are physically addictive. Uh Um, And I, I really do think that how we talk about those things in Alcoholics and Anonymous or in cocaine and differentiating um, can be harmful. Yeah. You know, it kept me away from AA. I can't say.
say that that's something that contributed to me taking six years before I got to a real uh, sponsorship in AA that saved my life. Mm-hmm. I may needed those six years so that I'd be willing to do that. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I avoided AA to an extent for several years uh, because I had this vibe or feeling uh, from the people around me that I really wasn't welcome in AA mm-hmm. uh, in it. In, in every area of my life, that somehow I, I needed to leave the, my drug story behind. And the fact is, my drug story is just as much me as my alcohol story. And I can't separate it and act as if I'm just an alcoholic and not an addict or I am what I am. And AA has welcomed me there. But at the same time, I do believe that there's a certain amount of courtesy in, right, in when you're speaking in front of people. You know, some AA groups are totally fine with you talking about everything and anything. Mm-hmm. But I've been told before I've spoken at groups, you know, they would prefer not to talk too much about drugs. Mm-hmm. And I understand that and respect it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, when I go to that, that situation, I really don't talk about drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. I talk about recovery. Right. Very good, yeah. And I am of the uh, the belief that uh, how do I put this? Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of people that are younger uh, coming into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that the drugs um, uh, and the addiction ramped it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of sped things along. Yeah. Uh, because I know for myself. Um, when I would take those drugs, I would be more prone to uh, drink a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot quicker in order to come down. Right. And so I think it's gotten people in younger. It's gotten more people in. Uh, it's kind of good news, bad news. that It speeds it up for AA, but for those who can't get off that track, it's bad news for them. Yeah, and I'll say this. I tend to uh, identify myself strictly as an alcoholic when I introduce myself at meetings. Mm-hmm. But when I see new Newcomers at meetings that have drug problems and and are nervous about being at an AA meeting, I will purposefully introduce myself as an addict alcoholic. And that's not because I think there's a difference between addiction and alcoholism in the spiritual sense and in the recovery sense. I do that just because I want them to know that there's someone else in the room that's been sober and clean a long time that they can identify with. Because if everyone in the room says they're an alcoholic and you say you're an addict and alcoholic is a newcomer, but you're just trying to be honest about who you are, I don't want you to feel like you're an outsider there because the room is full of people who did drugs and alcohol. Right. You know, and I want them to know that. Right. Another topic that I've always been very interested in with you is your relationship um, uh, with your mother. Uh, you are a self-proclaimed, I think you call it mama's boy. Mama's boy, boy yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, I'm going to tell my mom. <laughs> And uh, so talk about your relationship with your mother and, uh, uh, you know, kind of going, you know, obviously not every single detail, but whatever you want to share about your mom. Okay. So the first thing that comes to my mind, I'll just kind of be chronological, is I brought a lot of horror to my mother's life. Um, We were very close. Uh, I think psychologically, someone would say we were a mess, you know, when my dad left, I was in fifth grade and I did the best version I could of being the man of the house and taking care of my mom. And as I got older and realized I was going to go away, I was very scared for her that she wasn't going to have me. But during that process, when I became a kind of a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict, that relationship turned on her mm-hmm. in the sense that she... 
was very, very close to me and very, very concerned about me. And I just continued to progress and get worse and worse doing scarier and scarier things. And um, to the point that I think my mom really shuddered when people asked her about me, how's David doing? She didn't want to answer, you know, it, it really shook her and I think caused her a lot of emotional and even physical consequences because of how I kept her up at night and uh, stole from her and lied to her and, and, um, and I would be cruel to her and shaming to her and blaming to her. Um, you know, all the things that we do in the depths of our disease I did to my mom, you know, uh, but then, you know, the last 11 years of her life, um, I worked the 12 steps, had a spiritual experience and everything about my life completely turned around. I mean, it was a 180, and then the 180, I took off in that direction of changing and doing better and being where I said I was going to be and doing the things I was going to do, becoming, becoming, you know, uh, to the best of my ability uh, over the years, the exact son that she had always wanted. Right. And, you know, she passed away uh, when I was 11 years sober, and I was with her as much as I could be. Um, during the period of her death, you know, went on some, when we knew she was dying, we went on some trips with the kids, trying to take advantage of those last times together. Um, and then when she was in hospice, I was with her at every really major um, milestone of her death. Um, as she deteriorated, started to have really bad physical consequences of the cancer, it always seemed like I was the person that was with her when that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way it was supposed to be, you know. Uh, it talks about the program making us uh, uh, maximum service to others, and certainly that applies to newcomers in AA and, and AA in general. Mm -hmm. But it really applies to way, how we're able to show up for our family members in their deepest need. And not just our family members, but those closest to us in our lives. And, and I'll say this about it. I still miss my mom. I miss her uh, when I think about her. It saddens me that she's not here. Um, but I also know that I was the best version of myself that I could be for her uh, during her death and that she died knowing that I was going to be okay. Talk to me a little bit more about that. I remember I've, I've heard you uh, talk about details before about when you found out that she was dying and the, and the road from there to when she actually died. And go into those uh, uh, months okay. or years. Yes. Yeah, so when she she had been diagnosed with cancer uh, in around January or February uh, of 2004 and um but she didn't have any symptoms. She went to the doctor. They did some blood tests, just regular yearly blood tests, and found that she had uh, her liver was failing. And the reason they found out her liver was failing is because she had tumors in her liver. And so, but she was still very healthy, was able to do stuff. And that's these trips. And I think this is important too to talk about what her occupation was and oh she uh, was the she was basically the neighborhood piano teacher she was a diaconal minister in the methodist church right. so she was the choir director at churches right. and uh lived a very humble life right. um and you know i want to say this and i'm going to go back and talk a little bit about uh the her death but when she did die they found the largest Methodist church that they could find because they knew that it was going to be over. I thought it was ridiculous that they had to search so hard for this church. And then this woman who never made more than $20,000 a year in her life, yeah. uh, the just the choir of volunteers was 150 people. Wow. 
and the church was full wall to wall because of all she had done for her community. Yeah. I mean, she was really an incredible woman. Uh, but, you know, during, so I had moved into my neighborhood. I wanted desperately to be close to my mom. Yeah. So when I was about seven years sober, I moved in two streets over from my mom, maybe five years sober, a couple streets over from my mom. We would meet every morning to walk our dogs. And, and I, I walked up to the corner one day with my dog and she wasn't there. And I went home and called her and she answered the phone, but was unable to speak. And I jumped in my car and I drove over there and she was just staring at me with this confused look on her face. And that's when we found out that the cancer had gone to her brain and her death was imminent. And over those next few weeks, she deteriorated in hospice, and it took about six weeks for her to die. And about two weeks before her death, she had been in bed. Um, I came over to see her before I went to birthday night to get my 11-year chip, and uh, she was up and sitting on the couch and wearing one of her little uh, shift dresses from Mexico <laughs> that people bring back when they go to Padre <laughs> for spring break. And, and, and she would not let me go without taking her. So I literally carried her to the car, put her in, took her to the meeting and carried her in. Yeah. You know, she just couldn't, she could no longer walk. Yeah. And I remember I've shared this in meetings and it's, it, it, uh, it's a hard thing to share about, but I've shared this when I've spoken before that when I looked to the back of the non-smoking room and she was a person, she had this problem called brochusaphasia where she's unable to communicate. It's the tumors had disrupted this part of your brain. She's not, she can't talk. She can't write. She can't blink her eyes. Yes and no. And yet when I was getting my chip, I looked and she was waving at me mm. just to let me know that she was there, you know? And, and that was the moment probably the most, I don't know what the word for it, epiphany that AA had done something for me that was impossible. Yeah. You know, it had given not just me, my life back, but it had given my mother, her son back, you know? So it's a, you know, my relationship with her and then the ensuing years, I'll say this, you know, the, the period of grief that I went through and continue to go through to some degree. I mean, I don't think grief ever completely goes away at that, at that magnitude, but the period of grief that I went through, you know, I struggled with a lot of problems. I really didn't handle it as well as I'd like to think I did at the time, you know, looking back, I recognize that my ability to face that kind of pain was uh, not where I wish it would have been. You know, I made a lot of mistakes in my personal life and it was a lot of mistakes due to me needing to feel different, not being able to handle it. You know, you think about that lesson that I learned and the lesson was is that the people that I love the very most, that I'm either going to see them die or they're going to see me die. And that was one of those realities of life that I always ran from. And yet I was never really confronted with it before that. I'd lost grandparents in their 90s and that kind of thing. And that's hard, but it's not, it doesn't seem like a tra an injustice, you know. Right. Um, losing my mom when she was perfectly healthy and I expected her to be around for the next 20 years, it set off in me a grief that I had never experienced. And, um, and so I've been still, you know, she passed away 13 years ago and I still in many ways are, am recovering and, and trying to walk through and, and, uh, learn from the mistakes I've made, uh, sober because I, one thing I can tell you, AA made it possible for me not to drink, 
But, you know, those mental blank spots we talk about, you know, the curious mental twist, um, not bringing into our minds with sufficient force the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago, that just doesn't happen for me in terms of alcohol. It happens to me in terms of, of other things that make me feel different. It could, it could be anything from retail therapy to inappropriate romantic behavior to um, uh, losing my temper, uh, harboring resentments, um, all the different things where I get a little piece of power to feel different mm. that are unhealthy and, and take me to bad places. And I've really been, I've worked very hard over the past decade in sobriety trying to become appropriate in all areas of my life. You know. I understand that. So compare and contrast that a little bit. Um, I noticed you're getting a little um, emotional there when you talk about your mom, which is very understandable. I get that. You also tell a story, which I've heard before, about actually being at a funeral. And I, I don't know who this funeral was for, but looking around and everybody else was crying Mm-hmm. but yourself right and you couldn't figure out why that was happening and why you were kind of stuck if right. you will can you talk about that experience a little yeah bit? so that was my mom's mom nana okay. who was my she was my biggest fan i mean it was it's really funny no matter what i did <laughs> She would always, oh, it's okay. He's just growing up. He'll be fine. I remember I had taken my grandfather's car out and I drank too much and Lord knows what else too much. And I got home and just parked it in the garage and went to bed. When I woke up in the morning and came into the kitchen, the cooler of half drank beers and the, the probably marijuana and whatever else was sitting in the middle of the kitchen and he was there having breakfast and my grandmother was there having breakfast and no one said anything. It was just like the cooler of beer in the middle of the kitchen. And, uh, and my grandfather said, David, I want you to know, I don't think I can let you borrow my car anymore because what you're doing is illegal and I can't participate in that. That's the way he talked. He was very pragmatic. He didn't yell at me. He wasn't going to punish me. He was just saying it like it was. And I'll never forget my grandmother goes, oh, Jack, he's just young and having fun. <laughs> um, so anyway, she passed away in 1991, 1992, excuse me. And interestingly enough, I was in the middle of my longest period of sobriety, if you'll call it that. Mm-hmm. I had, it was actually 1991, excuse me. Um, I had stayed sober for about seven months and it was during the seven months that she was on hospice for renal failure. Uh And I was able to take care of her and go spend time with her in the afternoon so my grandfather could do his thing, play tennis. He, He was a very active guy. And so I would probably two, three days a week go over and just hang out with my grandmother for three or four hours all the way up until... Um, you know, she was really dying because with renal failure, you're slowly poisoned and you feel worse and worse. But at the end, it's really pretty awful. And I remember about, and I'm going to tell you a little more story than you're, than you know about, uh, than you've heard before when she was, uh, at the end, they had given her morphine to calm her cause she was bouncing around on the bed in pain from the, the, the poisoning. And so she had been knocked unconscious for about four or five days. And we were counting her respirations and knowing that she was coming to the end. And I had gone to Jesuit 
I graduated from Jesuit high school in Dallas and she had been an excommunicated Catholic. And it was one of her greatest regrets. She'd married a guy, had a baby with him. He left her high and dry while she was pregnant when she was in her teenager. She put the baby up for adoption, who she later in life tried to see, and the girl wanted nothing to do with her. And the Catholic Church excommunicated her oh because she got divorced. Oh, my goodness. And it was different then. You couldn't get annulments very easily. Right. So I ran up to Jesuit. And I got the head, the principal of the school, Father Jeffrey Dillon, great guy. And uh, he came. I told him the situation. He said, absolutely. He grabbed his kit. And we went to my grandmother's house. And he gave her her last rites. And he anointed her with oil and forgave her, her first of her sins and asked her if she repented of her sins. And she shook her head, yes, and squeezed my hand and looked at me. And it was the last breath she ever took. Oh, my goodness. Is that not crazy? So... Um, I went to, uh, we decided to do what her wish was, which was when we had her cremated, we would, uh, bury her ashes in her roses. And so the whole family came over and we had the ashes. This is a couple weeks later, you know, and I dig a hole under her rose bushes and we're all standing around and I'm, apparently I'm the laborer in the family cause I'm putting the ashes in the hole and... <laughs> I'm doing all the physical work and I get everything set and padded down and I stand up and my mom, who was a church musician, started singing Amazing Grace and everyone's around me, my whole family. And I sing, I sing all the time, but I just, I wasn't singing. And the reason I wasn't singing is because I didn't understand why I didn't feel anything. I just didn't feel anything. Everyone around me was crying And I just stood there dry-eyed and just baffled by what was wrong with me. And as I look back now, I wasn't working the steps. I was white-knuckling my sobriety, you know. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't meeting with a sponsor. I wasn't doing anything. And just a few weeks later, I relapsed and did some of the worst things I've ever done during my addiction. And what I recognize today is that I had just completely destroyed, comfortably numb, that song. I had become just numb. With or without drugs or alcohol, I was broken. And so when I started to work the steps, you know, you talk about me getting emotional talking about my mom. Um, One of the first things that happened, I was about two years sober. And this woman, Carolyn, who came in with me and relapsed with me and couldn't stay sober just like me. And we went to meetings. And I'm here to tell you, if Carolyn told you her story you would not be surprised that she relapsed all the time. I mean, her story of her childhood, the abuse she went through of all sorts and continued into her teens. I mean, you just would listen to her and feel like you like you wanted to give her something to make her feel better. Right, right. And I was about two, two and a half years sober when Carolyn got up to pick up her one-year chip. And I remember when she picked up that chip, she stood there and she held it. And the only thing she said is, I finally given up my right to a better past. And I had tears just pouring down my face. And I realized that my feelings were back. Wow. That I was having feelings, being happy and joyful for another person. And that had never happened. Wow. I used to go to meetings and watch people pick up their year chips and two year chips. And you know what I would think? Why doesn't this happen for me? Right. Like a jealousy, like they had won the lottery and why don't I ever win the lottery? 
And I sat there and I watched Carolyn pick up that chip and I really, I guess you call it empathy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. A lot of changes happen. A lot of changes. So, you know, this is more of a... uh, uh, okay, I want, I want to talk about a couple of things. Number one, uh, sponsorship. Um, I know that you sponsor a lot of guys, uh, um, a lot of guys, and you've gotten a lot out of it throughout the years, all the ups and downs that go along with that. But talk about what it's meant to you uh, as a sponsor, uh, working with these guys throughout the years and, and how it has uh, uh, helped your sobriety, basically. Well, I tell you the one thing that it does more than anything I realize the longer I stay sober is it keeps me accountable to my own BS. You know, what I, what I say to these guys, I am accountable to do in my own life. Right. And um, it's not BS. That's not the right word for it. But you know what I mean. I do. I can't be hypocritical about my, uh, about my message. Right. And um, that's probably the, like, the big ticket item yeah. is that I'm constantly engaged with people and seeing where the solution that Clovis taught me. And of course, through the years, I've picked up from other people, you, my second sponsor, Zig, you know, different things that have been passed to me from them and doing that with other people. You know, I don't work the steps exactly the way Clovis worked them with me. Yeah. It's very close, but there's things that have been added in and taken away as years have passed. And, you know, you know what those things have been taken away and added to my own recovery you know i just did a very thorough fourth and fifth step you know and i did my fifth step a couple nights ago and there's a lot of elements of that fifth step that were very thorough because the guy i had listened to my fifth step which i change up every time uh-huh. is a guy who's been sober four or five years and on fire with the program and had a lot of things to say about the way i live my life that, <laughs> you know i'm not super proud of but i know that getting input from other people, being willing to hear other people, takes away all this prejudice that I have. And the prejudice I have is that I, just because I think it's right. That's the thing that I have the most need for humility. And that is that my brain is not always trustworthy. And working with these guys has really taught me that. It's taught me that about them, and it's taught me that about me. I mean, it's certainly the obvious that it reinforces, that it teaches me, that it makes me a part of, that I am uh, have empathy and sympathy and care for other people. I mean, all those things are true, mm-hmm. but really probably the biggest truth is that I need to see that what I've done in my life works for other people. Right. And if it works for those people, it's going to work for me too. Right. You know? I want to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted, so to speak, and that is, uh, I know that uh, uh, the state of Maine, which is actually where I was born, by the oh, way, I, in Bangor, Maine, yeah. I don't know anything about it, right? I, <laughs> I was there for six months, Mike. I was an Air Force brat. But uh, uh, I know that the state of Maine is uh, uh, very important to you in your life, yeah. and it's had a, uh, a lot of influence on your life. So talk about Maine and, and what that means to you and, and how you got connected with the state of Maine. So my dad's from Maine. Um, the town that you and your family visited is the town that is basically where my dad grew up and where my grandfather practiced dentistry and um, and the lake that that I spend 
as much of the summer as on as I can mm-hmm. is the lake where my father grew up. And I went there every summer and spent the summers, you know, at least two, three weeks of summer with my grandparents on that lake. Um, and I just have so many memories. Um, I mean, when I, when I pull into Maine, I have a feeling of home. I've never lived there. But I've just visited. It's it's like that movie on Golden Pond, I guess, where they just go back every year and it's become just such a part of me. And what's interesting is there's a lot of my disease, my pre-recovery story mm-hmm. that happened in Maine to an extent. And then you can really probably look at those visits as signposts because now I'm a very active member at a really good group. It's an eight o'clock meeting every morning called the We Ain't Right group. <laughs> And I'm an active member. Those people call me. I have people there that call me like I'm their sponsor, although I've told them you need someone there to work the steps with. Um, I have people there that I go to with personal things. Um, And so I'm very connected in the recovery community in this little town of Norway, Maine. Um, And uh, it's, it's real important to me. I've really uh, lately been kind of ruminating over what to do there and how often I'll be there and, and how often I can go there. You know, I'd love to spend half the year up there when I retire and half the year here. I got a feeling the half the year you're talking about is in the summer. Yes, Am I right? it would not be right now. <laughs> I would not be right now. Although it's fun to go up there in the yeah. winter for brief stays, but mm-hmm. they have snow piled up on their roofs and on their front walkways. And right. that's not for me. Right. Well, David, this has been, uh, um, Enjoyable. Uh, I got to tell you that uh, in my um, in my estimation, um, I have felt uh, you know, and I don't want to go off on a, a tangent about this, but uh, um, I have felt the spirit of my higher power here amongst us this afternoon. Um, this has been uh, amazing for me. I've learned things about you I did not know. Um, and uh, it's just been fantastic. Anything you want to add before I do the last reading? Anything come to mind? No, I just really appreciate what we're doing here. And uh, I love Alcoholics Anonymous and all the 12-step fellowships. And I really just hope that this helps someone. Uh, and it will if they listen to it or when they listen to it. So from page 164 of the big book, it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thanks for joining us.